Good morning. One of my favorite things to do is to read and watch The Lord of the Rings. And in The Lord of the Rings, there is a giant spider named Shelob, and she terrorizes the heroes of the story, Frodo and Sam, near the climax of, of that story. But did you know that Shelob is actually the daughter of a much more ancient, much bigger, scarier spider named Ungoliant? And you may also learn that there's a bigger, scarier bad guy than Sauron. His name was Morgoth. That's a good name if you're a bad guy. And Morgoth wanted to take over the world. That makes sense. So he teams up with Ungoliant. And the reason why he wanted to team up with her is because she had this insatiable desire to consume everyone and everything in her path. And so the story goes that there are these, there's these two trees, and they give light to the whole world. So one's for the day, one's for the night. And so Morgoth and Ungoliant, they jump out from behind a big rock, and Ungoliant just devours the trees. She drinks the sap that gives the world light. Everyone scatters. Everything goes wrong. But Ungoliant isn't satisfied. So she disappears. She goes off. She gives birth to these other giant spiders like Shelob. And in her hunger, she even eats some of them. And ultimately, in her famine, she devours herself. And Tolkien was using this mythical character to show how unchecked gluttony, this desire to consume, leads to personal and collective ruin for us all. And making the jump from a mythical creature to our own lives isn't actually that big of a leap. Let me think about it. Gluttony tells us something about all of us. Gluttony takes good things and makes them ultimate things. The reason for that is because each of our hearts desires or longs for things to do for us what they were not created to do. And Christianity reveals that our desires are often for the right things, but they're in the wrong order. And only Jesus satisfies us. Only Jesus meets us in our sin of gluttony by satisfying us with himself. He meets us in our superficial satisfaction in lesser things by satisfying us with himself. That's what we're going to consider this morning from our text in Proverbs chapter 23, verses 19 to 21. Proverbs 23, 19 to 21. So if you have a Bible, grab a Bible or a Bible app and look with me at Proverbs 23. It says this, Hear, my son, and be wise, and direct your heart in the way. Be not among drunkards or among gluttonous eaters of meat, for the drunkard and the glutton will come to poverty, and slumber will clothe them with rags. This morning, we'll see that gluttony cannot make good on its promises to satisfy you. Only Jesus does that. We'll do that by answering three questions. First, what does gluttony promise? Second, what does gluttony deliver? And third, how should we 
respond? What does it promise? What does it deliver? How should we respond? So first, what does gluttony promise? The promise of gluttony actually hasn't changed since page 3 of the Bible. Back in Genesis 3, we read about the, the account of the fall of Adam and Eve. And what we're told is that God's enemy, disguised as a serpent, was crafty and he deceived them. They had every tree in the garden. The entire expanse of that paradise, they had everything except for one tree. And it was that thing that Satan used to entice them. But notice too, that when they took and they ate, added to their sin of disobedience and pride was their sin of ceasing to be hungry for God and God alone. We know from the biblical account that food and drink aren't inherently bad. And our text this morning isn't a warning about the evils of food or alcohol, but it's an invitation. What God has made is good. In his essay titled, what it, Whatever Is, Is Holy, Thomas Merton says this, There is no evil in anything created by God, nor can anything of his become an obstacle to our union with him. The obstacle is in worshiping ourselves. We use all things, so to speak, to the worship of this idol which is ourself. In so doing, we pervert and corrupt things, or rather, we turn our relationship to them into a corrupt and sinful relationship. So food isn't the problem. It's eating in the wrong ways that's the problem. Drinking alcohol isn't the problem. It's drinking in the wrong ways. It's interesting that food, while it's important for life and we need it to live, we also see that in the garden it brought death. Wouldn't it make more sense for the original sin of humanity to be something big and scary like murder or sexual assault, something like that? Why food? Genesis 3 tells us that Eve saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that it was desired to make one wise. And so she took and she ate. This fruit embodied Adam and Eve's craving for things like pleasure, beauty, and wisdom. Their hunger for communion with God was eclipsed by their hunger for worshiping their own appetites. And that's what gluttony is. Gluttony is worshiping the appetite. It's a refusal to be satisfied. At bottom, it's idolatry. When we find ourselves in gluttony, what we're doing is we're seeking to find in food or alcohol or any other good thing what can only be found in God. In so few words, gluttony is the opposite of self-control. And each of us, in different ways, have problems with self-control. Each of us entertains the promises gluttony makes. And so in our text this morning, we're presented with the two most common forms of gluttony, food and alcohol. That's because traditionally, the two go hand in hand. And even Jesus was accused 
of being a drunkard and a glutton because he loved to share meals with sinners. If you read about gluttony, you'll find that the, the medieval theologians categorized gluttony into different categories and they like to give them funny-sounding names. So here's what they said. They said you could eat excessively or sumptuously or daintily or impulsively. They explained that you could eat and drink excessively, which is demanding too much. That's what we usually think of when we think of gluttony. Or sumptuously, which is referring to eating nothing less than the finest, most luxurious foods you can get. Or daintily, which was eating only the most perfectly prepared foods because did you even eat it if you didn't Instagram it? And lastly, impulsively which is demanding food exactly when we want it. These categories have funny-sounding names, but they can actually help us look at our own lives and parse out how this applies to us. So that when Solomon says something like, be not among the drunkards or among the gluttonous eaters of meat, there's categories that we can use to help us locate ourselves a little better. There's a dissatisfaction under the surface so, we self-medicate with an excess of food or alcohol. Or maybe we can't be satisfied unless we eat the finest, most artisanal foods. We can get in the habit of having what we want as soon as we want it. We want food right now, and we get it. None of this is to say that enjoying fast food is bad or preferring bespoke coffee to Dunkin' is wrong. It does taste better, but it's not wrong. There are numerous instances in Scripture where food and drink and the goodness of feasting are spoken of in favorable terms. And sometimes God even commands the people to eat and drink their fill and feast. And while we know that food and alcohol are not bad in themselves, we can admit that alcohol is often disastrously misused. As Christians, we hold these two realities in tension. On the one hand, we see in the Bible feasting and drinking and eating to our fill, and even Jesus turning water into wine at a wedding. And on the other hand, we read of the times in Scripture where abusing alcohol from very early on in the Scriptures goes very wrong. So often, we look to alcohol in a gluttonous way because it promises this buffer between whatever's causing us pain and how we feel. Drinking to the point of drunkenness promises that the cares of this life can be put on the shelf for a time. Or if you're like me, you might also like to go to media and technology use to satisfy you or distract you. Did you know that the average American spends every day watching four hours of TV. On average, we spend two and a half hours on social media. Food and alcohol and things like media and technology are relatively easy to spot in our lives. But what about less concrete forms of gluttony, like uncertainty and commitment? which in the form of never being able to be satisfied in relationships or in current employment, or acceptance 
in the form of always seeking the approval of others or yearning for success, which is why so many of us are burned out and overworked. So, Solomon says, be not among the drunkards or among the gluttonous eaters of meat. But why? Why do we parse out all of these forms of gluttony and alcohol abuse and vain satisfaction seeking? Saying we ate daintily sounds funny, but what we're talking about is our hearts are constantly getting our desires out of order and seeking things to satisfy us. Gluttony promises us that we will be satisfied. It promises comfort and a sense of control. It promises that we can set aside our pain for just a few minutes. So creeping into a habit of needing a drink every day when I come home from work can help me put the day behind me, at least until tomorrow. Or creeping into a habit of eating for comfort or not eating for a sense of control can sound very appealing when our pain and the cares of this life overwhelm us. In much the same way, mindless scrolling and Netflix binging can distract us from our stressful and busy lives. In all these ways, and certainly more, the promise of gluttony is a siren song to each of us because gluttony says this way to comfort, this way to distraction, to satisfaction. But the question is, does gluttony deliver on its promises? Our second question flows logically from the first. Gluttony makes promises, but does it make good on those promises? What does gluttony actually deliver? Sometimes, gluttony delivers more of what we want, which is actually more of a personal prison than a banquet in our honor. When we get the thing we want, but not what we need, we've deceived ourselves. We shouldn't look away from, from what wrongly relating to food and drink welcomes into our lives. Gluttony promises comfort and satisfaction, but it delivers ruin, both physically and spiritually. Look at verse 21. Solomon says, For the drunkard and the glutton will come to poverty. I think it's safe math to allow the Proverbs to make a general statement. If you spend too much of whatever wealth you do have, eventually you won't have enough before too long. We find things to consume, but we find that those things end up consuming us. As we consider the glutton and the drunkard from verse 21, Solomon tells us in no uncertain terms, they will come to poverty. Literally, they will inherit poverty. And then they'll trade in their wealth and security for rags, which is simply a metaphor for whatever they did have now coming to ruin. Gluttony promises satisfaction, but it, what, what it nets us is us being the ones who are consumed in the end, like Tolkien's giant spider. Look ahead at verse 29. Solomon asks this, Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has strife? Who has complaining? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? Those who tarry long over wine. Wrongly relating to food and alcohol brings ruin into our lives. But just by virtue of being a human, we already have woe and sorrow and strife in our lives. I thought we were running to gluttony to escape those things. 
Solomon says we're just compounding our sorrows. And gluttony doesn't just affect us. It affects those around us and the people we love most. So something that my kids like to do lately is they go into our uh, room and they raid our dresser and they put on all of our clothes. And they come out and they say, I'm daddy, I'm mommy. And we have a good laugh because they're wearing giant clothes and it's cute. But recently, my daughter Autumn was doing this. She went in, she put on everything, all of my clothes, and she grabbed my phone. And she comes out and she says, look, I'm daddy and I'm always staring at my phone. And it's true. I am always staring at my phone. Gluttony affects those around us. There have been so many times where I've finally looked up from my phone to see someone from my family wanting to connect with my heart, but I was a million miles away. Our gluttony is affecting those around us. Parents, if you're a parent, did you know that the majority of us are checking our phones before we even get out of bed? I think that probably extrapolates to all of us. For the sake of our families and our relationships, we have to consider how a habit like that is setting us up for the rest of the day. Our hearts longing to escape reality and dissociate and distract us from our pain and our stress is affecting everyone around us. Our refusal to be satisfied by way of overconsumption of food and alcohol or media and technology or our needs to be affirmed or successful, all those things come with personal and relational bills to pay. And what's so insidious about gluttony is that this lack of self-control when it comes to eating and drinking can and does often lead to other sins. So there's this story from 1 Samuel in the Old Testament where Eli the priest has these two wicked sons. And whenever people come to bring their sacrifices, they take what, they've, what these people have given and they keep the meat for themselves and they eat it. And whenever people try and get in their way, they threaten violence. But then the story goes on and it tells us that after a while, they began having affairs with the women who were serving in the, meet, in the tent of meeting. And here's the connection for us. Gluttony and sexual sin often flow from the same root of self-indulgence. A lack of self-control when it comes to food and alcohol often leads to other areas in our life where we're willing to cut corners on self-control. Lacking self-control with food or alcohol can open the door to these other sins like lust and greed and even laziness. Author Jonathan Bowers puts it this way. He says, Self-indulgence is a chameleon. Put it near food, and it shades like gluttony. Put it near another person, and it takes on the colors of lust. Because of this, he says, we cannot afford to think that our eating habits are somehow neutral territory in the fight against sin. If we make peace with gluttony, we will eventually make peace with the other vices. Several years ago, I went to a fancy art gallery in Dallas with my wife. And in this gallery, they mostly had 
paintings of dusty, dirty old cowboys trying to wrangle some longhorn steer. It's not really my thing. It's fine if that's your thing. But we kept going, and there were some original Georgia O'Keeffe paintings that were very beautiful. But here's the thing about an art gallery. You have limited space. If you start filling an art gallery and you start filling the walls with more and more and more paintings, pretty soon you lose focus, you become distracted, and you can't see the forest for the O'Keeffe's. Our life, your life, is like an art gallery and there's limited space. You can only hang so many paintings. We must curate the walls of our hearts and our daily routines or those walls are going to crumble. Proverbs says as much. Listen to this. Proverbs 25, 28 says that a person without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. Gluttony promises security, but it delivers brokenness. It promises a version of prosperity, but it delivers personal and spiritual ruin for us and those closest to us. So all of this brings us to our final question. How should we respond? If gluttony promises satisfaction, but it delivers dissatisfaction, what are we to do with our favorite forms of gluttony? Here are three things I think that we can say from our text. First, we must repent. Second, we need to have a plan. And third, and most foundationally, we must look to Christ to satisfy us. So first, repentance is always a good place to start. We need to survey our lives and what our coping mechanisms are, whether that's comfort or security or distraction or acceptance, the list goes on, and confess those things and repent of them. Look at verse 19. Solomon says, direct your heart in the way. Gluttony requires directing our hearts towards our own satisfaction at whatever cost. But directing our heart in the way of wisdom, we naturally have to turn away from being satisfied in those things. We also need to repent of worshiping ourselves. In Philippians 3, Paul says that there are those who walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. He says their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame. Gluttony is just another form of worshiping ourselves and making a God out of our own desires. Paul's saying that there is real spiritual danger for us here. We must turn back from worshiping ourselves. And secondly, we need to have a plan. Look again at verse 20. Solomon says to his son, Be not among the drunkards or among the gluttonous eaters of meat. And Solomon says, Be not among. Is he saying never associate with drunkards and gluttons? Is he saying bad character, bad uh, morals corrupts good character? I think generally that's what he's saying. But remember, the Proverbs are wise sayings spoken from generalities. And we have the New Testament now. We have the life of Jesus now. We know that he spent time with gluttons and drunkards so much that his enemies called him those things. I think the larger reality 
is that wisdom is warning us not to be among their number, not to become them. So how do we not get to that place? Part of our plan should be seeking to relate to those various things rightly. Food's not the problem, and so the solution is not to enjoy food less or to stop eating. The solution to gluttony is to eat rightly, in right relationship to it. We should pray and ask God to show us these areas and for his spirit to give us the grace to walk in self-control. And self-control is a a fruit of the Spirit. Paul urges us to keep in step with the Spirit. To apply the art gallery metaphor, what are the ways that you can curate the way you approach eating and drinking? How can you curate your intake of food and alcohol in order to use those things rightly? How can you curate your use of social media and technology? Could perhaps committing to go to the scriptures before we check our phones in the morning reorient our entire day? What would happen if we took seriously our need to relate to these things rightly in a culture that sees gluttony as a virtue? When we start to live untethered to the false promises of gluttony, we tell a better story to our friends, to our family to our co-workers. But having a plan will never be enough. The book of Hebrews doesn't just encourage us to lay aside every weight and sin which entangles us. It goes on to say that we must look to Jesus. We must fix our eyes on him, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Having a plan is only possible when we look to Christ to satisfy us. When we talk about rightly ordered desires, the reason that they're not rightly ordered is because our hearts have allowed lesser things, even good things, to reprioritize what satisfies us. Taste and see that the Lord is good, Psalm 34 says. Moses in Psalm 90 says, Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad. We must see Jesus as the most beautiful thing, not just to be believed in in some general capacity, but to be captivated by. Here's what the poet John Donne said in one of his holy sonnets to the, whole, uh, to the three-person God. Here's one of his prayers. He said this, Take me to you, imprison me, for I, except you thrall me, never shall be free, nor ever chased, except you ravish me. He's saying to God, draw me to yourself and make me satisfied in you, or I'll be drawn to any other thing and imprisoned by it. Satisfaction is so fleeting because Jesus is the only one who can truly satisfy us. And the good news is that the gospel frees us in all of these ways. If your relationship to food and alcohol is in a place of worshiping your own appetite, the gospel says your deepest hungers have been met in communion with God. If your struggle with uncertainty, the gospel says the only certainty is that Jesus loves you and died for you. If you struggle with acceptance, The gospel says the only verdict that matters is that Jesus says you are my beloved child. 
if you struggle with achievement, the gospel says that in Christ, you have achieved nothing on your own, but you receive the blessings of God in Christ. We struggle so much with being satisfied in life because we simply don't look to Christ. In John chapter 6, Jesus performs the miracle of feeding the 5,000. He multiplies the five loaves of bread and the two fish. He performs this miracle, and then later his disciples talk to him about it, and they say, can you do another sign? Can you do something else? Like when God dropped the manna from heaven to our fathers. Can you do something like that? And this is what he says. The bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And so they say, give us this bread always. And this is his response. He says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This, meaning himself, this is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread, and the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. He goes on and he adds, Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, for my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. This is the bread that has come down from heaven, not like your fathers ate. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus is saying that real, abiding satisfaction can only be found in him. Jesus was the bread that came down from heaven. He lived the life you should have lived and died the life you should have died so that your joy and satisfaction could be made complete in him. If you're a Christian, Jesus paid the penalty for your worshiping yourself in the form of gluttony. And if being satisfied in Christ, this idea of being truly satisfied in Christ, sounds rather esoteric or theoretical, here's something concrete for you as old as the church. This morning, those of us who have put our trust in Christ are going to receive the meal that Jesus gave his disciples at the Last Supper. This simple meal reminds us that Jesus has given us his spirit. He's given us himself now by his spirit. This meal reminds us of our soul's need for Christ like our body's need for food. And in this meal, we actually renounce our own gluttony in order to share together. In this meal, we rehearse self-control because we wait and we receive together. Remember back in the Garden of Eden, in, chapter, in Genesis chapter 3. The serpent deceives Adam and Eve, and it says, she took and ate, and Adam took and ate. But fast forward to when Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples before he's betrayed. He says, take and eat. This is my body, which has been given for you, do this in remembrance of me. Do you see the reversal? Jesus is spiritually present to us in his people and in his word and in this meal that we share together. 
In Christ, we have an embarrassment of riches. If you're not a Christian, or you're new to exploring Christianity, I urge you to consider the empty promises of gluttony. No amount of overindulgence can ever satisfy us. Gluttony cannot deliver what it promises, and what it does deliver is only ruin for us and those around us. But when we look to Christ in his word and feed on him by faith, there is grace and fellowship for us by his spirit available to us even now. This meal that we're about to receive is a foretaste of the coming feast when Jesus returns to make every sad thing come untrue. It's a foretaste, but it is a real taste. Think back to Thanksgiving when you open the oven and you slice off a piece of the turkey to see if it's ready. It's, this meal's a little bit like that. It is a real taste of the coming feast that is to come. We will one day feast in the house of Zion, and we will weep no more. And this meal that we share is a remembrance, and it, cre- and it creates that longing, and it sustains that longing for the coming day of Christ. It's not the full coming feast, but it is a real taste. Jesus is the true bread, and by his Spirit, he is ours to feast on because there's no overindulgence in feasting on Christ by faith. When we look at our lives and we find these coping mechanisms of overindulgence, whether that's food or alcohol or any of these myriad things, we see that they can never truly satisfy us. Let us look to Christ. Because we spiritually feed on these things all week to our own detriment. Let us direct our hearts in the way of wisdom, as Solomon says. Let us rather spiritually feed on Christ and look to him by faith. Taste and see that the Lord is good and be satisfied in him. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your church, we ask for your help. We are so needy. We are so hungry. We're so dissatisfied. Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. So God, help us by your spirit to be satisfied in your son. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.